This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Jennifer and I are still on break, so we have another set of clips, and this time we are talking about some places on the Earth that we don't talk about enough. This is part of why we do this podcast. Exactly. So what clips are we going to be hearing from today? The best of extreme places to live. The best of extreme places to live. Extreme. I love this one. We start out with episode 177, What's It Like to Live Underwater? With Aquana Liz McGee. And then we have, What's It Like to Live on Mars? With Janet Ivy Doonsing. And finally, episode 156, with How Do Plants Survive Extreme Habitats? With Matthew Biggs. You are going to have tons of fun listening. We hope you enjoy it. So go and learn more about extreme places to live. What is it like to live underwater? Ooh, what's it like to live underwater? And this guest is one of my favorite aquanauts. Who are we speaking to today, Jeff? Let's get right to it. We need to start talking to aquanaut Liz McGee. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hello. Thanks for having me, Jennifer and Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we are thrilled to have you. So those of you that hopefully are familiar with my astronaut aquanaut book but if you're not liz was one of the aquanauts that was interviewed and she helped me answer some questions for my astronaut aquanaut book so she's a celebrity there right? <laughs> she is <laughs> she is on this podcast yes exactly okay so i'd like to start off with my first question did you always want to be an aquanaut and be in the ocean and learn about it I have always wanted to be a marine scientist. Ever wow. since my older sister was obsessed with manatees, I thought anything in the ocean I thought was cool because she thought it was cool. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, so when you say kind of older sister, how much older and how old was she when she got interested in manatees yeah, yeah. that you got interested in the ocean as well? They are still her favorite animal five years older than me and that she was probably around nine or 10 when she started. No kidding. Wow. So I was a little, yeah. And so it was just always a, this is what I want to do. Cause she thought it was cool. So I thought it was cool. And 
ever since then. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. So, so did you go to the ocean or where did you grow up near one yeah. or something that you got to yeah. spend a lot of time there? Yeah, we grew up going to the coast of Maine. It's about oh. three hours north of Boston. We would camp right on the beach every summer, wow. every year nice. of my life. And we would spend hours tide pooling, looking under the seaweed, looking for hermit crabs. And I said a campground called Hermit Island because of all of uh. <laughs> and hunting for sand dollars and just really exploring all over the coast of Maine. And that really instilled in me a curiosity for the ocean. That's a gorgeous place. I just visited Maine a couple of weeks ago. My daughter lives up there. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness gorgeous we went to acadia i'm like this is this is where i want to live right here (laughs) by the ocean and the trees Uh, i can imagine going there as a kid wow with that all starting so early do you remember doing projects in school like whenever it was time for your science teacher or writing an essay was your first thought to do some sort of project about the ocean Oh, yeah. Like any relevant (laughs) ocean relevant activity I could, I was there. And that even I signed up to take a life sciences class early in high school so I could take biology early. I really wanted to go to a summer camp up in Acadia, Maine for marine sciences. And so, yeah, anything I could do to kind of keep it relevant in my everyday world, whether that's taking a marine sciences, I was there. I was for it. Okay, you're in high school, but kind of when did you get into it? Did you start like volunteering at aquariums or yeah. or when did you start diving? Yeah, well, I didn't start diving till college, but I okay. did start volunteering at the New England Aquarium when I was in high school, when oh, I could wow. get there pretty much on my own without having to have parents drive you into the city. <laughs> I volunteered in the visitor education department and was able to like share my passion with all of the visitors at the aquarium. And that was amazing. And then I went to school at Northeastern University, which is where I work still today, and took the beginning scuba course that they offered. And I got a co-op back at the New England Aquarium, diving in the giant ocean tank. I did (gasps) 700 dives. No way. Hung out with Myrtle for hours every day. Oh my gosh, I've seen Myrtle. (laughs) She's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. I'm very jealous. That's the job (laughs) I would want. So in some of the same time frame, I was actually just down the road at the New England Science Center in Worcester. Um, And I became Galactic Space Geek Jeff because I started working in the planetarium. at the New England Science Center. So I love the story of how going to work at the New England Aquarium, you know, right near Northeastern, Mm -hmm. sort of set you really on the career path, and you're still there today. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, after Northeastern, after graduating college, what was your first job experience in the ocean world? Yeah. So I did a study abroad program called the Three Seas Program while Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad that was how I got involved in the world of science diving. Diving has some inherent dangers associated with it because you're underwater, which is not our natural environment. So in order to work underwater, there's an agency called the American Academy of Underwater Sciences that trains Mm -hmm. divers to be able to do science underwater. Okay. Ah. When I did the study abroad program, I got trained as a scientific diver and really got bit by the bug of science. 
um, specifically. And so I kind of continued on that trajectory. And after this program, I stayed out on Catalina Island in California. Oh, wow. Yeah, I worked at a different summer camp, the Catalina Island Marine Institute. And I got my scuba instructor certification during that same time period so that I could then go on to facilitate teaching other people how to do science underwater. So that was my first post-college job. It was really fun being able to teach. I like it. Yeah. So can you give us some examples? Because, I mean, I've never heard the term scientific diving. How is that different? Like, what are you doing for science underwater? Anything you can do on land as a scientist, you can kind of do underwater as well. So there a lot of times you're really curious about things like how many types of one specific type of organism is there in this environment? Like yeah. how many insects are in this patch of grass? You can translate that to underwater and say like how many right. snails are in this wow. And so the same types of ways that you would count on land, you can do underwater as well with t- the same types of tools, as long as they are appropriate. I did not water, know that. Float away, you can use them underwater. And we have underwater slates to record data. So you can use a pencil and this, it's like a PVC material or, or underwater paper and just transcribe your data as you're collecting it underwater. And- That's super cool. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Lots of underwater paper and duct tape and zip ties is kind of our (laughs) (laughs) very, very technical equipment we're working with here. How do plants survive in extreme habitats? How do plants survive in extreme habitats. Oh, this is going to be really fun. Who is our special guest today, Jeff? This is going to be so much fun. Today, we have expert gardener, author, and broadcaster from the United Kingdom, Matthew Biggs. He trained at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, we are thrilled to have you. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to talk about plants because we haven't really kind of investigated everything to do with plants. But I like to start with my first question. Did you always love plants as a kid? Were you one of those kids that dug in the garden and made your own garden and planted things and grew it? No. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. Of course, yeah. Nobody says yes. So how did you get into plants then? Uh, My mum had a garden. My dad loved the countryside. Um, I worked in an office for a very short time because I didn't have many qualifications. And (laughs) I used to think, you know, I'd love to work outside. I used to see people in the summer in the gardens and started to think, Gardens are really nice. And my mum started taking me around gardens. And my father loved all the historic gardens that were in Britain. And little by little, I had to give up the fight because it was (laughs) taking me over. It was almost like a big green but wonderful monster that wrapped its arms around and and said, come with me, Matthew, (laughs) to garden. So I I just couldn't resist. It was great. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. That sounds like a story waiting to happen. Yes. And somebody's going to buy the film rights and (laughs) I can picturing it on a big screen. A great picture book. Yes, for kids. Absolutely. So how did you allow, I think a lot of our listeners are young, 
and you know they like something and they realize okay they like it and then they start doing it more and then they start doing it a little more if you can think of words how did you feel yourself like let it take you over it's really interesting you should say that jeff because i moved to work for a local authority so I was working, you know, in, in uh, parks in the city where I lived in Leicester in the town hall square. And it was really little by little, minute steps, not baby steps, minute little. <laughs> <laughs> little by little, it took me over. And the more I got into it, and particularly when I was able to go to queue, I mean, to go to a place like that, this garden listeners is it's a really ancient garden and they've got examples of deserts of rainforest of alpine of temperate zones really ancient plants that have been there for centuries it was once a garden that belonged to the king and queen of england and they started a small collection of plants so it was just the perfect place for it and Really, it just became more and more. It was like, you know how you start a snowball and you start pushing it? <laughs> yes, and yes. And then it gets bigger and bigger. Well, it was like that. So I started off with quite an interesting plant. thought, this is good. And the more I got into it, the more exciting it became. And I learned about the plants wow. in the desert and thought, wow, I'd love to go to a desert one day. And I thought, you know, what must it be like to be a plant living at the top of a mountain, hunkering right. down a stone, you know, with, yeah. or with, it, ra- with it raining very rare. You know, what would I do when I'm hungry? How will I survive? Yes. I started to learn that the plants were able to live in all sorts of places around the world. And in fact, it's only places like the Antarctic where there is a giant ice sheet, the biggest desert <laughs> in the world, that there are very few plants. And I wanted, I wanted to find out more about flowering plants in the Antarctic. And there are actually two kinds of flowering plants in the Antarctic. Really? I didn't know there were any plants there. Because of climate change, the ice cap melting, these plants are getting more and more established. And what really I found fascinating with this one is that the ones that live on very rocky ground where there's not much soil, they just stay very tiny and small. But if they're by the sea, near the sea, and the penguins live, then they get this lovely... Breakfast, lunch, and dinner is penguin and seal poo. <laughs> <laughs> nice fertilizer there, natural fertilizer. Absolutely. Just the job if, if you're that kind of plant. That's so cool. So, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about is plants growing in extreme places. And But also, you could see all of this or a lot of this in Kew Gardens in the UK. Can you explain yeah, you can. that? They have like a hot house or like a greenhouse. How does that work? They do. They have they have hot houses. And you've got similar botanical gardens. Don't forget all your wonderful American botanical yes, gardens. Yes, God. I mean, you know, you can go to, is it the Arizona Desert Botanical Gardens? And there you've yeah. got all the plants and people will tell you about the deserts. So we put all our temperature loving plants in greenhouses, but also the right. alpine plants from the top of the mountains. because. Right. Top of the mountains, the conditions are similar to the uh, the poles, the Antarctic and the and the oh, okay. yes. the altitude. So you've got the snow and the short growing uh, season. So plants have to be kept dry because they spend a lot of their life under a lovely big duvet of snow, uh, <laughs> yes. and then it all melts away, and they do their 
as much growing as they possibly can. And trying to track the insects, and some of them will move around to catch the sun. So it's almost like saying to the flies that are around, you know, come and sit in this deck chair. It's very warm. <laughs> so I got, love that. You know, they bring in the pollinators in all sorts of different ways. Wow. Because that's what it is for the plants. It's like for the plants, the same for us, it's about surviving. And the plants do so much for us, as well as make the world beautiful. You know, they're really, really important for our survival. That's very right. true. Yeah. I absolutely love how you talk about it and how you were describing how you grew into what you love because it was all about asking questions. Yes, curiosity. And the way you were asking the questions was, it reminded me of Einstein and how he figured out general relativity. The story goes, he started with the question of, what would it be like if I sat on the end of a light beam, yeah. a beam of light? And yeah. you were just asking the question as if you were the plants. Yes. How do I get some food? Where can I get some sunshine? Have you always asked questions in that manner? Or did you notice because you found a passion for plants that you started asking the question like that about plants? That's really interesting because I ask questions about the plants. You know, when you first see them, so People will sometimes say to me, Matt, Matt, I've got a really silly question. <laughs> yes. So I would say to your I... listeners, there's no such thing as a silly question. We're Agreed. not yep. we're born with that knowledge. So the more questions that you ask and the more um, inquisitive, you know, well, why is this? How is this? What, yes. what is this? When did this happen? What will happen if I do this? Then right. the kind of lovely questions that your listeners ask Yes. ask those questions they then educate themselves and learn to understand and the more you understand the more you can care for things the more you can enjoy things the more you can share i think it's really right. important that if you love plants if you love space if you love the underwater world whatever it is then share it with your friends and try and make sure that everybody that you know knows about your interest, but also has an interest of their own because it makes life so exciting, yes. uh, so interesting. And wherever you go, you know, you will always be asking questions. What would it be like to live on Mars? What would it be like to live on Mars? Oh my gosh, I want to know. This is going to be an amazing episode. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is just the right person to be talking to about this. She is the one and only Janet Ivy Doonsing, creator and CEO of Janet's Planet, American Astronautical Society's 2022 recipient of the Sally K. Ride Excellence in Education Award. And she is the Director of Education for, yep, Explore Mars. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Janet. Thank you guys so much. Delighted to be here with both of you. Oh, we are so excited to have you. Yes, we are. Especially because we're going to talk about Mars, the red planet. <laughs> Yay. But I like to start out with 
did you always as a kid love to look at the stars and think about living on Mars maybe? You know, I always loved space. And this is where I love to give a shout out to Miss Ernestine Yarbrough-Jones, my fifth grade teacher, <laughs> yes. 1978. And she and Miss Carolyn Davis in their bell bottoms brought uh, a telescope. Jeff, you'll love this. Brought their telescope out to the playground. Now remember, Excellent. this is rural West Tennessee, so there was not a lot of light pollution. Wow. Uh, Miss Ernestine Yarbrough Jones, beautiful African-American lady. Miss Carolyn Davis, beautiful redhead. And these two ladies were showing me Cassiopeia. Oh, and I, wow. I just remember looking at Saturn and Mars for the first time through a telescope and going, oh, <laughs> <laughs> what is these two ladies? So- Really, I'd always loved science. I always loved the solar system, but Miss Ernestine Yarbrough Jones made it come alive. She assigned wow. the planet Saturn in fifth grade as we went through the solar system, probably why my logo looks a bit like Saturn. But I think <laughs> from just that moment of engagement with, you know, it was the year kind of like around the year Star Wars came out, proof of how oh, yeah, that might be. I remember that. <laughs> yes, I remember that. But I always like to credit her because, yeah, I always loved looking up. I had my That's aunt awesome. Pat who believed in aliens. So I would stand at <laughs> the field and we would look for UFOs with her. So that nice. was fun. So, yeah, so there was a bit of Martian there. But for my love of the solar system, it really goes back to fifth grade and my amazing teacher. That's so nice. awesome. That's wonderful. And I really love that you remember some of the things that you actually looked at in those mm -hmm. very early days. So knowing you and being a fan, I obviously know your bio and know that you didn't go straight through school and have space and planets as a full-time career. <laughs> what I want, we're going to use that for homework because we could get lost in your other career as well <laughs> for listeners. What I would like to ask you is how did you come back around to space and planets and Mars as a career? Yeah, so from that Bachelor's of Music and Theater degree at Belmont University, <laughs> how did I end up anybody wanting me in the space community? The thing is, is like I graduated from college, literally had like, we were on the pitch sheets for Mercury Records. I was in a group called Summer Rose and Ivy. Wow. I we would have been before the Dixie Chicks. They had just signed Shania Twain <laughs> and Toby Keith. Oh and my we were no, in the room with Harold Shedd and it was like, we were doing demos and stuff. And then Mercury and Polygram merged and the record deal went away. But at the time, you know, kind of like, you know, in the gig economy, yes. ever, I had this job at the local theme park, Opryland USA in Nashville, Tennessee, oh, and doing a show called the Opryland Kids Club. I was 25, feeling like a 10 year old. <laughs> With kids that were like, you know, anywhere from like eight to 12 years old. And right. so like we were for, performing four times a day. And basically I did that thing from 92 through 97. And during that time, I thought, my God, I the deal went away. Who cares? I love working with kids. This is amazing. Yes. I looked around okay. and I was like, what can I do? And I was like, how about science and space? Going back to that, that yes. kind of like All understanding right. those, you know, constellations and stuff. And, you know, I'm, you guys might have heard of Interplanet Janet. She's a galaxy girl in that whole kind of schoolhouse. I life. have, yes. But I couldn't be that because, right, somebody else owned it. So a parent, yes. one of the kids I performed with is like, well, let's take a look. Let's look, do a trademark search. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Planet. And I was like, oh. 
I can have my own planet. Yes. So again, I didn't even know what I was going to do, guys, except when I looked around mid to late 90s, there was nothing other than Bill Nye, the science guy in Beekman's world, which I love. Yes. Those. But basically, I was like, you know what? I'm planting the flag on Janet's planet because where are the female science role models? I love that portion of like, if I was going to perform and do kind of children's entertainment or work with kids in some fashion, I thought... Let's be smart while we do it. And let's yes. like let's with an eye out there to outer spaces are, you know, that interconnectivity, that star stuff we are, that, you know, iron in our blood, the calcium in our teeth, the carbon in our DNA. We are yeah. stars. But oh, look back. There's that sweet little ball, that blue ball that, <laughs> that holds everything we love and is easier to live on than Mars. Maybe we can do something with that. And so literally. I'm going to say with a couple of nickels and some duct tape is how we started. (laughs) 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 You know, sometimes I pinch myself because again, I just want to encourage anybody. Nobody's going to ask me for the like, you know, five-year plan or like business (laughs) plan, except follow those little guideposts along the way that kind of push you in a bit of a direction, be willing to at least, you know, kind of like be curious and see where they lead. I, Truly can't imagine not being Janet or Janet's planet. It's been a fun, yeah. fun ride for the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. People ask me too, how did you become a children's author? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> the door just opened and I happened to just walk right through it. And it's been, you know, amazing. And now, um, you know, we have this amazing podcast. But okay, what I want to ask you, because what we're going to talk about is what would it be like to live on Mars? And I know everybody is so excited because, right, like, it's like people get ahead. Like, we haven't, you know, Artemis 2 hasn't quite happened yet. So we haven't gone around the moon. We haven't landed on the moon again. And people are like, oh, no, 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 Mars is where it's at. So what can you tell us about Mars? Well, the argument for a lot of those people is that, hey, we've been to the moon. And let's head on out. Let's let's get there and do it and not not that we're going to waste time. We are going to learn how to live and thrive. Right. And if you start to get into conversations with people, it's like there are things that will work on the moon that may or may not work on Mars because yes. I mean, the difference of no atmosphere on the moon, you're talking about a very thin layer on Mars. But when we get there and hopefully, again, for a long time, the goalpost had 2033 on it. Right. I think that it will definitely be by 2039, 2045. I'm saying that no later than 2045. That is like my my thing is like, if it's not 2033, I think somebody's going to go, we're tired of waiting. And by 2045, we're going to see people actually land on Mars. But Ooh. I'm saying our research stations are going to be on the surface, but we are not. We're going to live down in lava caves because we're going to have to live underground to like really kind of mitigate that radiation, mitigate those like 100 degree temperature differences. It might be 70 or 80 degrees at the equator during the day, but by nightfall, it's going to be minus 70. So figure out ways to live in within kind of like these lava tubes. Now, a fantastic architect named Alfredo Munoz has designed something. You should go and look this up on YouTube. It's called Nuwa City, N-U-W-A. It's by Abibu Studios, and he's already designed this. So he's wanting to kind of put windows in mountains and sort of like kind of live 
in almost kind of like the sides and interior wow. of a mountain. So then you could kind of see the sunlight. You might benefit from some of that, but it's beautiful designs. But again, we're going to have to live under and inside a closed loop system because of radiation, because of the temperature and because of the perchlorates and all that dust. Talking about reasons we do this podcast, extreme places to live, both underwater and a whole other planet. And then jumping beyond the humans to talk about how plants survive extreme habitats. How cool is this one? It's so fun. And if you want to go and listen to the entire episodes for each one of these, you can find them on our website, solveforkids.com. So go and listen and then look at all the website pages and maybe even pick up one of those recommended books to learn more. Absolutely. We know you're on break too, so we know you have time to read (laughs) more about Extreme Places to Live. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve Solve It It for Kids. Kids.